The following sermon, entitled The Christian's Desire to Be with Christ, was preached on the evening of March 26, 2023, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Philippians chapter 1. And we do so in connection with Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the Gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life, or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I know not. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of faith. 
that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the Gospel of Christ, that whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which He saw in me and now here to be in me. As far we read God's Word, it's in this connection that we consider Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is found in the back of our songbooks after all of the songs on page 12. The practice of our church to use the Heidelberg Catechism as a guide, a teaching tool, as it explains the basics of the Christian faith. Lord's Day 22. What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? That not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body being raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein for ever. This evening we come to the end of the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is that summary of the Christian faith that has been handed down to us from the ancient church. And the Heidelberg Catechism includes a, an explanation of it so that For the past several weeks in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we've been going line by line through the Apostles' Creed as a summary of what we believe as Christians. And now we come to the end of the Apostles' Creed in that we treat the last two articles of that creed. Namely, that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And it's important to understand that the Apostles' Creed ends this way for good reason. Because this is really the climax of everything that it has already taught us. So that all of the previous phrases, all the previous articles, all culminate here with our hope for the end and our hope for life everlasting. And really, All the previous articles are an explanation of what our triune God has done for us so that when we die, we might have life everlasting and we have the hope of the resurrection of the body. So that what we have here 
is the crowning point of our salvation. And for the child of God, this is something we desire. As Christians, this is something we look forward to. There's a desire to be with Christ in heaven. A desire to see Him face to face. A desire to worship Him both in body and in soul. In the new heavens and the new earth. At least that certainly was the Apostle Paul's desire. Even as he expresses that hope, that desire, that confidence in Philippians chapter 1 when he makes those statements that he does that are familiar to us that death is to die is gain. And that it would be far better for him to depart this life and enter into the next. He's expressing his hope for life everlasting. And the goal of this sermon, the purpose of this sermon is to examine that desire that we share with Him of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so in that connection, let's consider Lord's Day 22 using as our theme the Christian's desire to be with Christ. The Christian's desire to be with Christ. That's the theme for this evening's sermon. First, we'll look at the gain in departing. Second, we'll look at the hope in right of rising. And third, the need for abiding. The gain in departing, the hope of rising, and the need for abiding. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul makes a, an astounding and rather startling statement. In verse 21, he says, For to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is, to die is advantageous. To die is profitable. And then he goes on to speak how he's in a straight between two. He's torn as to whether he wants to continue in this life or depart and enter into the next life because that's far better. And that raises the question for us, how can the Apostle Paul by inspiration say this, that to die is gain? Because we're talking about death here. God's own punishment against sin. We're talking about that last enemy that every Christian must face. We're talking about that which ends, which severs every earthly bond and relationship. And we're talking about that which involves the painful rending of body and soul. To die, says the Apostle Paul, is gain. What explains that? How are we to understand that statement? Well, the Apostle Paul himself tells us the explanation is that for the believer, death is his entrance into everlasting life to be with Christ. And that's what's really in view for the Apostle Paul. It comes out in verse 23, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart. And now he explains, to be with Christ. And what he's expressing here is his confidence that when the believer dies, his soul is taken immediately up into heaven to be with Jesus Christ. And that's the teaching 
of the, Apost- of the Heidelberg Catechism in question answer 57. The beginning of answer 57 says that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head. That is, when we die, there will be that rending a part of our body and soul. The body will go to the grave and remain here until Christ comes again. But the soul of the child of God goes immediately into heaven. That is, into conscious glory. It remains alive and enters into the everlasting life. And the heart of that life is being with Christ. That's what stands out for the Apostle Paul. He gets to live with his Savior. He gets to see his Savior face to face. Which is to say, he gets to enjoy everlasting life because that's the heart of everlasting life. As Christians, we do believe in life everlasting. That's the very last article of the Apostles' Creed. And question answer 58 explains that for us. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? The answer, that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation which I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. What is life everlasting? Well, it's the inheriting of perfect salvation. And the heart of that is life with God in Jesus Christ. For after all, our Savior taught us that this is life eternal, that we might know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom He sent. That's John 17, verse 3. And He's talking not just about knowledge in the sense of being acquainted with Jesus Christ, but knowledge in the sense of communing with Christ, fellowshipping with Christ, living with Jesus Christ. That's everlasting life. And that's what the believer, the child of God, has to look forward to the moment he dies. And it's for that reason the Apostle Paul can make these statements that to die is gain. It's profitable. It's advantageous. Or to use the language of verse 23, it's better. Verse 23, for I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. Literally, he says much more the better so that there's actually three comparatives used. And if we were going to try to communicate that in our translation, we'd have to say very far the better. He's emphasizing there's really no comparison when you set these two things side by side. Because to remain here in this life is to be a pilgrim. A stranger in the spiritual wasteland that is this world. It's to live in tents as foreigners in a world that hates us. And what is more to remain here in this life is to be subject to all manner of sufferings. Trials, afflictions, sickness, pain, disease, grief, sorrow. It's a part of this life. And what is still more, to remain in this life means that constant battle against sin. It means being tempted of the devil on a daily basis. Having that old man of sin 
seek to pull us to a life of sin. And with that in mind, the Apostle Paul says it'd be better, far better, to depart. And note that word, to depart. The literal idea is to unloosen something, to untie something so that you can think of the untying of a ship from the dock or the unloosening of the the tents, the stakes of a tent so that the tent is folded up. And the idea then is we're departing in the sense of leaving certain things behind. Leaving those things in the rearview mirror specifically. Leaving behind the fact that we're pilgrims and strangers. And we're instead arriving into heaven so that instead of being a pilgrim, a stranger here, to depart means we get to enter into our eternal dwelling place. Into those heavenly mansions that Christ Himself is preparing for us. To depart means no more suffering. No more sickness. No more pain. But instead we get to enter into everlasting bliss into the fullness of our salvation. And we get to enjoy all of the blessings that Christ has earned for us. To depart means I, may, I no longer need to battle against sin, but I can at last lay down my armor and rest knowing that my enemies can no longer touch me. That's why the Apostle Paul says by faith, to die is gain. It's much more the better to depart. That was his confession. Is that our confession? Do you believe this, child of God? Because there's a temptation for us to think that really it's far better if we remain in this life. And you see, this ties into the theme for family visitation this year. There's a temptation for us to set our hearts on the things here below to become so wrapped up in the things of this life that we have little to no longing for the life to come. And insofar as that's in our hearts, the remedy is to remind ourselves of the One whom we get to be with when we depart. To depart is to be with Christ. That's the heart and center of why it's gain, why it's advantageous, why it's profitable. I get to be with the One who came into this world to suffer all of His life long, to lay down His life for me. I get to enjoy His, His beauty, His holiness as my Savior. And speak with Him and live with Him. So we're to fix our spiritual eyes on Jesus Christ. And it's when we do that, when we have Him clearly in view, that we will make this same confession that to die is gain. That it's much more the better to depart. And what is more, when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, we will be absolutely confident that it, that, that is what is waiting us when we die. Because 
the basis of everything that we have said thus far is the saving work of Jesus Christ. For the reality is that on account of our sin, what we deserve when we die is everlasting death. What we deserve when we die is not to go to live and be with Christ, but to be cast into hell. Into everlasting torment. And that will be the lot of all those who reject Jesus Christ and continue on in their sin and unbelief. And that's what we deserve on account of our sins. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has delivered us from that. And He did that by coming into this world to pay the debt that we owe for our sins. That is, to bear the very punishment that we deserve. Namely, hell itself. That's what He endured on the cross. Which is to say, He endured the exact opposite of life everlasting. Life everlasting is to be with God. And to enjoy His favor. To have His face shining upon us. And Jesus Christ during those three hours of darkness was separated from God. That was His own testimony when He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But in enduring that punishment, He has delivered us from that punishment. So that for those who die in Jesus Christ, there is no longer that prospect of eternal death in the fires of hell. But instead, we get to look forward to going to heaven because of the other part of Christ's saving work. Namely, His perfect obedience to the law of God. To the fact that He fulfilled all righteousness for us. And that obedience, that righteousness is now imputed to us as the basis for God to declare to us that we are righteous in Jesus Christ and thus be given the right to life everlasting. That's the good news of the Gospel. And what is more, we have this confidence that Christ our head has already entered into heaven guaranteeing that we will be brought to be with Him. And that's the idea being expressed at the beginning of question and answer 57. Answer 57 says that my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head. So embedded in there is that we get to go to be with Christ, but then it adds those two words, its head. Reminding us of our union with Jesus Christ. That living connection between our Savior and us so that He is our head. We are members of His body. And the key is, where the head goes, the body will surely follow. And our head, Jesus Christ, entered into heaven immediately after His death. Yes, His body went to the grave. But before he died, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His soul, his human soul, went immediately into the hands of his Father. And where the head goes, the body is sure to follow so that when we die, though the body must go to the grave, the soul will likewise be commended into the hands of our Father.
And that is our comfort as we face the prospect of death. The comfort that we will be with Christ in heaven. A comfort though that is completely destroyed if we have a wrong view concerning what happens to the soul of the child of God at death. For you see, there are erroneous views concerning what happens to the believer when he dies. One of those wrong views is known as soul sleep. The idea that at death, the soul simply lies dormant until Christ comes again. That is, the soul is not conscious of anything around it or even self-conscious of itself. The other most prevalent wrong view concerning what happens to the soul of the believer at death is the view of the Roman Catholic Church that, namely purgatory. That the soul of the believer goes into the fires of purgatory to pay off the remainder of our debt. And one's length of time in purgatory is dependent on how much or how little we did right in this life. Those are two wrong views and we reject both of those wrong views. We reject them on the one hand because they destroy the believer's comfort. Because at best, it would mean that there's nothing to look forward to immediately after death. You're just going to lie there dormant. You're not going to be aware of anything going on around you. That's at best. At worst, if we would adopt the view of the Roman Catholic Church, that would mean there's suffering waiting for us. Suffering that's far worse than anything that we would endure in this life. So because those views destroy the believer's comfort, we reject them. But that's not the main reason we reject them. We reject them primarily, on the other hand, because they're contrary to Scripture. They're contrary to this passage that we have in front of us. Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul could not say, to die is gain if what followed was simply soul sleep or purgatory. He could not say, it's much more the better to depart if one of those other two views were true. But it's not just this one passage. This is the testimony of the whole of God's Word. So that, for example, we have Luke 23, verse 43. The message of Jesus Christ to the penitent malefactor. Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with Me in paradise. And understand, if there's anyone who had to go to purgatory to pay off for some extra sins, it's this man. He just became a Christian. But Christ says to him, today you will be with Me in paradise. This is the teaching of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That is, when the child of God is absent from his body, that is, his body and soul have been separated at death, he is therefore present with the Lord. He's with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And so it's on the basis of the Word of God that we reject these wrong views. And it's thus in light of God's Word that as believers, we can have the comfort 
that we do concerning death. And that is indeed the main application of this Lord's Day. Notice how both the questions are worded. What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford the end verse? And question 58, what comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? As Christians, we have comfort. Comfort, even as we ourselves each face the prospect of death. For apart from this truth, the prospect of death would be terrifying. Apart from this truth, death is altogether fearful. But knowing that on the basis of Christ's saving work, when I die, my soul will be brought immediately to glory means I need not fear. I might look up against the process of dying, but I need not fear death itself. Because death is no longer the punishment of sin. It's now the passageway, the the portal, whereby the believer is brought to glory. So there's comfort for each one of us as we face the prospect of our own death. But there's also comfort in light of the death of loved ones who die in the Lord. As a congregation, we have felt that. In my short time as your minister, I believe there have been nine deaths in this congregation. And even if the death did not occur in the last three and a half years, there have been many other deaths that occurred prior to that. And apart from this Gospel message, there would be no comfort. Apart from this Gospel message, we would be overwhelmed with grief and sorrow that that earthly relationship has been ended. But in light of this, there's a comfort that mitigates the grief, that tempers the sorrow. It doesn't take it away altogether. But it still provides comfort to the soul to know my loved one is with Christ. And for him, for her, that is far better than to come back and to be with me. As much as I miss her, as much as I miss him, I would rather he or she is with Christ. So there's gain in departing. But there's also a hope of rising. And that's what we want to consider in the second point. There's hope for the body because we believe in the resurrection of the body. And we do so on the basis of Scripture. For example, Job 19, verses 25 and 26, we read this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though, my, though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job is expressing his confidence that after he dies, in the body that he possessed, he will one day see God, His Redeemer. 
This is the truth expressed in John 5, verses 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear His voice and shall come forth. That has come forth from the graves, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. So there's a resurrection of the body at the end. This is the teaching of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. That is, He will bring their bodies to be with them in heaven. There's a resurrection of the body that will take place. And it's on this basis, on the basis of these passages and many others, that the catechism teaches what it does in the second half of answer 57. The question, what comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee? We've explained the first part, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but now the the answer continues, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. There's three elements to this resurrection of the dead. First, there's being raised. But also that this my body being raised. That is, when we die, our bodies will go to the grave. And there we who were created out of the dust, to dust we will return. But when Christ comes again, He will gather together that matter, that mass that formed our physical bodies and reform them into the body that we had previously so that we will be recognizably the same. There's the being raised. But then there's also the the reunion between body and soul. The catechism says, being raised by the power of Christ shall be reunited with my soul. At death, body and soul were ripped apart. When Christ comes again and after He's raised our bodies, He will then reunite our souls with those bodies so that we are quickened. We're made alive again. And then the third element is that we will be transformed. And whether that's this transformation takes place while He's raising us again, or whether it's after our soul is reunited, we don't know. But Scripture teaches that we will be transformed. That's the teaching of Philippians chapter 3, for example. Verse 21, which says of Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. He's going to take our bodies and change them. Make them like unto His glorious body. There's going to be a transformation that will take place. So we'll be raised. Body and soul will be reunited and we will be transformed. That's the resurrection of the body. But Now this raises a question. Well, what about those bodies that were completely destroyed at death? What about the body of the martyr who was burnt at the stake? What about the body of the martyr who was fed to wild beasts? There's nothing left of that body. How could Christ possibly raise such a body from the dead? Well, the answer 
becomes apparent when we see that there's a certain parallel between the original creation of man and the resurrection of the body at the end. Because how did God create man in the beginning? Out of the dust of the ground. And then He breathed into him the breath of life. That is, He gave to him a living soul. Well, at the end, it's not going to be that different. First, The first time He did it, He made us out of the dust of the ground. Well, at the end, He's going to take that mass and matter that previously was our body and regather it out of the dust of the ground to form us once again. And then rather than giving us a soul for the first time, He's going to reunite that body with the soul that we had in this life. And it's in light of that parallel that it's not that difficult for us to understand how He could raise a body that had been completely destroyed. Now having explained that, we must make clear that it's not an altogether new and different body that He gives us. It's the same body, but transformed. That it's the same body is evident from that confession that Job made. In Job 19, verse 25, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And it's on that basis of that passage that the catechism uses the language that it does in the middle of answer 57, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. This body! So that there's a level of genuine continuity between the body that I have now and the body that I will have for all eternity. So that we'll be recognizable to one another. We'll still look like ourselves in many ways. Which ways? I do not know. But we, it'll be the same body. But that said, we must not so emphasize the the sameness, the continuity that we fail to see that there's a a level of discontinuity. There's a a change, a transformation that takes place. That's evident from Philippians 3, verse 21. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body? There's a, a glorification of the body so that there's a difference. And that difference comes out especially in 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 42 through 44. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is the body, is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So when you put these passages together, we see it's not an altogether brand new body. It's the same body, but yet changed. And it will be that way for us. Because that's how it was for Christ. And His resurrection. When He arose again from the dead, it was the same body. There's a reason that when the disciples came to the grave, There was no body there. It's not that the body had been completely destroyed, annihilated, and now he's got an altogether new and different body. 
But the body was not there because it's the same body. And further evidence of that is the fact that Jesus could point to the marks of His crucifixion. He could say, look at the palms of My hands. And the disciples could recognize Him. Yes, at times He he hid His identity for various purposes, but in general, the disciples could tell "This this is Jesus. So it was the same body. There was a level of genuine continuity between the body of our Lord while He walked on this earth and His body after His resurrection. But there was also a level of discontinuity. There was a a change, a difference. He was glorified. His body was fit for heaven. And a part of the change was that He could just appear in the middle of a room that was locked and then He could just disappear again. For Christ, it was the same body, but yet glorified, transformed. And when He comes again for us, He will do the same to us. For you see, the resurrection of the body is indeed a part of His saving work. He's the one who will raise us again at the very end. That's evident from John 5, verse 28. We read it earlier. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. The voice there is the voice of Jesus Christ. And thus the Catechism teaches us what it does when it says, but also this My body being raised by the power of Christ. Christ is the One who will raise us again at the end of all things. And this, as a part of our salvation. It's not the case for the wicked. They too will be raised. But Christ's resurrection will not be the cause of their resurrection. The cause of the resurrection of the wicked will be the justice of God. And that they must be punished not only with respect to their soul, but also with respect to their body. So the difference is not whether one is raised and the other left in the grave, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. All the bodies of everyone who ever lived will be raised again. But the difference is that for the child of God, for the believer, the resurrection of our body will be an aspect of our salvation. And the cause of it will be Christ's own resurrection because we're united to Him. He's our head. We will partake in that aspect of His saving work. So that just as He arose, left the grave, and walked around again, so too we will rise again. Leave the grave and walk around. Just as His body was glorified made fit for heaven, so too our bodies will be glorified and made fit for heaven. And that's our hope with respect to the body. That in our bodies we will be both with like Christ and with Christ. Like Christ. Now does that mean 
we are going to be able to just appear and disappear, show up wherever we want in the new heavens and the new earth? I don't know. But I do know this. It means your body will be perfect. It means no longer will you have to battle against cancer. It means no longer will you endure the effects of that injury. It means no longer will there be that chronic pain that you've dealt with for years. All of it will be gone. It means no longer will the mind fail us at times so that we're unable to remember certain things that we used to be able to remember. It'll be perfect. Like the body of Jesus Christ. But not only will we be like Christ, we'll be with Christ in our bodies. When we die, the soul will be brought to glory to be with Christ. But when Christ comes again, the bliss of heaven will be advanced. It gets even better because we'll enjoy that relationship with Jesus Christ not only in our souls, but also with our bodies. There's a progression. And the heart of it is we get to be with Christ. That's what makes it far better That's what makes it gain to be with Christ. And now it's in light of these glorious Gospel truths. The hope of the resurrection. The fact that to die is gain. That it's worth taking the time to see why it's needful that we abide, that we remain. Because when we hear these truths, when we talk about getting to be with Christ, there's a part of every one of us that wants that right away. Why wait? Every child of God has a a longing within Him for the day that Christ will come for me to take me to be home with my Savior. And as Christians, we long for the day that Jesus Christ will come again. We pray that even. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly on the clouds of heaven. And if that's true for all of us to one degree or another, is it not true especially for the aged saints in the congregation? Those who have lived Three score years and ten, or if by reason of strength, four score years. Who can say, I have fought the fight. I have run the race. And I'm just ready to go home. I'm ready to depart. That's a desire too for the child of God who lives an especially difficult and painful life full of so many burdens, so many difficulties. We grow weary as pilgrims. And we start to think, why Lord are You tarrying? 
Why have you not come for me? Because I do believe it's much more the better to depart. I'm not in a straight betwixt two anymore. It's not that there's a part of me that wants to stay and a part of me that wants to go. The whole of me wants to go. That's the point that the child of God reaches in his or her life. But yet, in so, so long as it's God's will for us to stay, we must see that it's needful. And that's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is making in Philippians chapter 1. This was true for Paul that it was needful for him to stay. Verse 24, after saying to depart is far better because it's to be with Christ, he says in verse 24, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And then he says in the next verse, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you. He knew that his hour was not yet come. And it's for this reason that though he was in prison at this time, we understand that this was his first imprisonment at Rome from which he would be released and allowed to continue his work as a missionary. This is not his second imprisonment when he's put to death eventually. He knew his life would continue. Because he understood God still had work for him. There was a purpose for him abiding. That's what comes out when he says what he does. I know that I shall... Well, verse 24, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, church at Philippi. And then verse 25, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you, with you all, for your furtherance and joy of faith. He understood that there was work for him to accomplish on behalf of Jesus Christ for the, the gathering, for the defense, for the preservation of the church in that day. It was needful that he abide. And so it is for us who are still living. There are indeed times where we wish the Lord would just take us to live with Him in glory. But yet, our life continues. Perhaps there's a, a setback from a health perspective, but then perhaps unexpectedly we, we get better. Placed on hospice care for a time and then taken off of hospice care. When something like that happens, when life seems to just drag on and on and on, well, the comfort is that it's needful to abide. And for the bulk of the congregation, that's, we can readily come up with reasons why. If we're a member of a family, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, well, there's my family I need to take care of. There's, there's the church that still needs me. I need to serve in the church. But this is also true for the aged saints too. When Christ keeps you here on this earth, He does so for a purpose. 
Maybe it's to take care of your spouse whose health is not the same as yours. Maybe it's because your witness to God's preserving grace is still needed in the church that every time you show up and sit in the pew, even in your old age, the rest of the congregation can see God's work to keep us, to preserve us. Maybe it's because you still have things to teach us. Lessons we need to learn from the older members in the congregation. Or maybe it's just because God knows that your family is not ready to let go. And in His tenderness, He's bringing them to that point so that they too are ready for you to depart. Either way, Christ is glorified. That was the Apostle Paul's confidence. Even as it's expressed in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. The Apostle Paul confessed that whether I die now or I continue to live, either way, I'm confident Christ is going to be glorified. And that's our confidence too. If it's Christ's will, and it will bring glory to Him that I abide, that I stay, that I'm going to stay. And I'm going to continue to serve Him in whatever way He gives to me. But if it's His will for Him to call me home, then I trust in that too He will be glorified. Sometimes it's needful for us to abide. But even then, we're not left without comfort. Because we have this comfort that we have already now the beginnings of life everlasting. And that's clearly implied in what the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. He's saying already now in this life, Christ is my strength, my joy, my all. He's saying all my strength comes from Jesus Christ. I rejoice in Jesus Christ and I live to the glory of Jesus Christ. And standing behind all of that is that He has already in this life the beginning of the life to come. And that's what the catechism is getting at when it starts the way it does in question and answer 58. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy? We have that beginning because We've already been given new life. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ has already been applied to our souls. It'll be applied to our bodies when He comes again. But we've already been given that life now in our souls so that there's a a heavenly life in us. An everlasting life. And it means already now we can live with God. We can speak 
with Him. We can hear Him speak to us. We can communion with Him. We can fellowship with Him. We can enjoy life with Christ already now. And that, need not, and that does not need to wait until we get to heaven. And so long, and therefore, so long as it is His will for us to abide, to remain. We take comfort in that. We let that be what satisfies the soul. We let life with God, the beginnings of it already now, be our joy, our happiness. While at the same time recognizing it's only a beginning. And because it's only the beginning, I still long for the day when either Christ Himself will take me home through death or Christ Himself will come again to raise us from the dead and to bring us to be with Him in life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the saving work of Jesus Christ and for the confidence that we can have that one day our, that when we die, we will be with Christ. That when He comes again, He will raise our bodies and change them like unto His glorious body. And that we will enjoy life everlasting with Thee for all eternity. Fill our hearts with a fervent hope for this. And may this be a part of what keeps us from setting our hearts on the things here below. And instead, to seek the things above. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.